Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Forrester CX Cast. Sam Stern, joined by Jenny Wise, as always. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And in studio, we have our colleague, TJ Kitt. Hi, TJ. Hello, Sam. Hello, and Jenny. on the line, Rick Parrish, all the way from Washington, D.C. Hi, Rick. Hey, everybody. Good to be with you. And so we invited TJ and Rick to join us today to talk about uh, some research they've been working on and answer this question related to the research of how can you avoid having government derail your customer experience innovation. And Rick, we always think of you as our government CX analyst, but this is not a report just for government clients, right? This is about, in general, how any sort of government action might prohibit or constrain or restrict you from uh, innovating your customer experience. So uh, maybe can you just start us off and, and help us understand what what are we talking about here, um, what this report is about, and, and who should be interested and care about reading this piece of research? Sure, sure. So, yeah, this this report is not about government as such. It's about how government can get in the way of companies that want to improve the quality of their customer experience and how these companies can think about that in a more uh, rigorous way. Because there's so many ways, right, in, in which in which government can, can be a stumbling block for companies, right? Think about the, uh, uh, say, regulation in California that prohibits smart TV manufacturers from using voice recognition data, uh, right, to get to know their customers better, right? That's potentially, uh, that's potentially a hurdle. Right? Or think about a, how, um, uh, oh, across jurisdictions, utility companies have to deal with uh, different rules about um, digital workflows. So you get, you know, some jurisdictions in which a utility uh, can do everything digitally, but in others where they have to do things by paper because there's different laws about electronic signatures. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there's or or right, all of the, the issues related to, say, the sharing economy and, you know, our uh, ride hailing app drivers, uh, contractors or employees. Right. All these kinds of things keep coming up to say nothing of GDPR. We'll say a lot more about GDPR. But right, the idea here is that if you're a company that's trying to innovate in CX, you're going to run up against uh, regulations that can cause problems for you. And, you know, if CX professionals are really going to uh, really take the lead in their companies on these transformations rather than just sort of sort of being uh, relative technocrats, they need to lead the conversations in their companies on this issue. They need to take the lead on figuring out how their companies need to relate to government when they run up against a regulatory hurdle. Got it. So not just like Uber, where you just smash through them and disregard them and <laughs> build ground 12 support for overriding them, but well, be a little bit more uh, collaborative? Or maybe, what are you going to say, TJ? Maybe. I, I think, <laughs> maybe. I, I think the, um, the point that we make in this report is that uh, – like any good strategy, your mileage will vary, and and you really have to kind of take this um, in stride, um, and you have to look at it in light of you know several different factors um, related to the government's disposition and its general seriousness about the thing that it's proposing. Um, I, I think the other thing to kind of you know note is that the position that we take is not necessarily. You know, the title set aside, I mean, it's not necessarily one that should be read as political in any way, shape, or form. We're not making a libertarian argument, for example. Right. Um, our argument is that the government has a reason for what it's doing. Mm -hmm. um, you have to recognize that and you have to respond accordingly. Um, but what we are trying to counsel against is what um, 
Harley Manning on our team often refers to as learned helplessness. Um, mm. there, there are very few situations in which you are completely powerless to do anything. Um, so the, the idea behind this report and this uh, stream of thinking is that even if it seems like there is some sort of insurmountable challenge based on you know what the government is dictating at this point in time, there probably is a workaround because you're probably going to be able to find some sort of common cause um, with the legislators and regulators in your particular area. Okay, so Rick, you alluded to this before, but who's involved in this inside of an organization? Who are we talking about here? I mean, we're talking about uh, customer experience innovation, so I'm picturing a CX team. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you know there might be the um, you know the liaison to government or the you know, senior executives or um, you know people who are um, you know considering the I mean a legal team, I Is guess. So, legal yeah, legal yeah. counsel. So who who are you thinking about when you're trying to give this advice? And if I'm a uh, listener to CXCast, so I'm more likely to be a CX professional than the rest of that constituency we were just talking about. How do I get those other people involved in a way where it isn't learned helplessness or it isn't by the book compliance with regulations or it isn't just smashing through them and disregarding them, but it's some more nuanced approach? Sure, yeah. And, and yeah, back to, to allude to what I said earlier, the CX pros really have to take the lead on this, this conversation. Usually uh, what happens in in companies, even around things that aren't necessarily super innovative, is the the CX folks, you know, work in relative isolation, you know, perhaps with some, some product managers and such, and they come up with some new idea, and then they eventually float it to the legal team or the security and risk team or whatever, um, and then they, they get a big no, and then they have to go back to the drawing board, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, 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 so instead, what, what you've really got to do here is you've got to bring those, these people in from the beginning, Right. Yes, absolutely. You've got to bring the legal department, bring your, your risk management people in from the beginning. Um, make sure that, uh, you know, you, you inform, you know, upward to the executives who are supporting these sorts of, these sorts of innovations. You wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't want them to, um, to be surprised at, at some, some sort of new relationship with government that you propose, right? You need them as, you need them as an ally along the way to say nothing of the product managers, the security and privacy people. But yeah, even, even further afield, you mentioned, um, the, uh, your government relations people, right? Most companies have a voice of some sort in government. Larger companies tend to have their, their own lobbyists. Even if you don't have your own lobbyists, chances are you're part of at least one industry organization, possibly multiple industry organizations, right, that give you a voice in government at the, at the federal, at the state, at the local level. Um, and most of the time, we just, we just, we don't really think about those, those folks. And so, so they're over there just kind of pursuing traditional business interests in government. But bring them in here, show them what you're trying to do, show them how it's to the advantage of your company, get them working for you, right? Um, that's what they're there for, but left to their own devices, the lawyers, the risk management people, the lobbyists, they're just going to continue trading away on their, their traditional jobs. But you get them in and you show them how this is to, to everyone's advantage, they're going to get them on board. So then the idea here is... First, before you start doing anything, if you're on an innovation team or a CX team, understand what what rules and regulations may get in the way of what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, step one. And then if there is something that is in the way, you start this government relations strategy to try to make change. Are there any examples where that has happened, where that's been effective? And then also, 
I guess, who leads the charge? Is it the person in CX who's been tasked with caring about this who goes and tries to make this change? Or is it a larger effort or someone in a different part of the organization? I mean, there are plenty of examples where um, companies have been able to get their way. Um, you know, you alluded to the very beginning, um, you know, the, the gig economy, you know, the Ubers and the Lyfts and the Airbnbs of the world. Um, granted, the, their progress is municipality to municipality, country to country, but, you know, where they have been successful in places like the Bay Area or um, mm-hmm. in New York City or London, um, it's been through, you know, kind of the hard work of, you know, I guess in one respect, bogarting your way in, but then after that, after you've established that foothold, um, you know, then really kind of working with local regulators. I think there's maybe a better way of framing this is to kind of think about this in context of, you know, what your potential strategies would be towards approaching government Mm -hmm. and then thinking about the sorts of things that you may want to consider before picking a strategy. Mm -hmm. So what we talk about in the report are four different ways that you can think about going at the government or, mm-hmm. or working with the government as it relates to... Cooperating and collaborating with them, yes. Yes. Um, so um, on a, a scale from you kind of most resistant to least resistant, um, you know, you have at one end this notion of complete resistance. You know, so this is the idea that we think that this rule is stupid and so we are going to... Um, ask forgiveness as opposed to asking permission. And so that's really where a lot of the gig economy stuff came Mm -hmm. from. Um, Sure. Yeah. We should probably have a livery license. You know, we should probably um, have a hackney license, but we don't think that that's actually kind of a good way of doing business. So we're going to essentially set up, you know, these um, black market cabs and then Hopefully everything will work out in the back end. Or all those uh, brazen little kids with their lemonade stands on every corner in the summer. Exactly. <laughs> uh, hey, you know, the rules. We didn't yeah, change. Yes. <laughs> um, the second thing, you know, as we move away from just kind of that notion of complete resistance is this idea of creative compliance. And I think this is where you actually get into a lot of the things that Rick was talking about, where you bring in the right people um, from legal, from, you know, your, your process organization, from your product organization have a conversation about what the rules are and how you can perhaps work around them. And the example that I often use um, in this context is a a company called Clear. Um, If you're unfamiliar, uh, they are the company that allows for you to bypass the TSA line because they have stored your biometric information. So they've done retinal scans, they've done a quick background check, and they've done um, fingerprint analysis so that they know who you are so that you don't necessarily have to wait in the TSA line for them to verify that you are who you are. Um, You don't get that... You know, you don't get to that sort of company if you start from the position that the TSA line is immutable. Um, you start with the idea that people would prefer the line to be quicker or to be able to get to security much more quickly than they currently can. So what can we do within the current system to help people achieve that goal? Now, <coughs> excuse me. If we recognize the idea that all the TSA wants to do is verify that the name on the boarding card is the, is the name of the person who's handing me the boarding card, then we can probably work something out. So that's where you get into these notions of creative compliance. The third is really kind of this idea of, you know, lobbying for change. We have an idea. We think it would be a great idea, but we don't know if we can actually do it. So let us go to Washington or go to the state house or go to City Hall and try to persuade the relevant regulatory bodies that our idea is good. And so you see a lot of, you know, if we turn back to some of the gig economy companies, that's this is where they actually spend a lot of their money. Um, so Airbnb has spent around... $250,000 um, 
successfully lobbying for, ex- for exemptions for themselves in places like Cuba. You know, so we have um, rules against doing business in Cuba. Uh, Airbnb was able to get um, get an exemption for themselves because they thought it'd be great to have those services uh, that they provide in Cuba. But we need that exemption, and so let's let's invest there. And then finally, is this kind of idea of you know kind of complete acquiescence to the the regulatory body, so zero resistance. And that's you know when you understand that there isn't really kind of a way forward for you in these areas of complete resistance or in lobbying. The rule is the rule. So if you think about GDPR, for example, it is what it is. We're past the point of you know the, any of the regulatory bodies involved in that um, accepting commentary. Yeah. So we just have to figure out how best to craft the experience that we would like to deliver within the context of those rules. That's interesting, though. I, I, mean, I feel like I almost can imagine companies applying all four of those yes. approaches depending on what the government is like, what the rule is like, where they are in right. their life cycle. Like Airbnb in Cuba is a great example, but they brazened their way into markets yes. previously. Cuba feels different because it's an entire country. It's just opening up to capitalism, right? right. So maybe they take a different tack there, but it, it's already they've got a proof case that Airbnb is something. Yeah, right. yeah. and that's and that's what we and that's how we think about the evaluation that you should go through in yeah. order to pick a strategy. So when we're talking about the evaluation, and I'll just go through this very quickly. There's six items that we look at. Um, the first is the government's effect on your brand. Um, you know, so if the government in terms of, you know, what it does seems to kind of go against your core values. So Google pulling out of China, for example, was because Google has this notion of, you know, information wants to be free. We are here essentially to be information brokers. China has this opposite opinion. So we really can't, in living up to our brand and our brand promise, you know, do business in China. So we'll retreat to a locale near enough that we can do business in the region. Um, The second is market opportunity. So um, when you think about let's say Facebook and Facebook's desperation, it seems to get into China. Um, it's because there's just, there are a billion people there or a couple billion people there. We want to have access to that market. Um, the third is a competitive landscape. So what are the competitive pressures pushing you in one direction or another? So if you look at a lot of the financial services firms and, and how they're looking at um, new experiences that may run afoul of some of their old regulations. A lot of it has to, is, is springing from the fact that they're trying to compete with these new fintech upstarts that they, that they can't quite figure out what to do with. Uh, the fourth thing is, uh, you know, are there gaps or vaguenesses in the law that we could potentially exploit or potentially create enough of a stopper you know, that our legal department gets a little uptight about it? So there are a lot of things, for example, in GDPR that aren't clearly spelled out. Um, but because the penalty associated with it is so extreme, I think it was at three to four percent of your global revenue. You know, people don't necessarily want to take any chances. Yeah, so don't chance it. <laughs> right. right. And then that kind of goes in with the fifth point, which is the government's enforcement posture. So if they're going to be really hard about this and... We don't exactly understand what's going on or if it's pretty clear what's going on, then we don't want to take any actions that are not going to be first co-signed by somebody in the government. And then finally, the public's approval. Um, and this, this is where a lot of companies get in trouble. Um, this is what you're seeing in, in terms of a lot of the companies that handle individual data. Why you're seeing so much pushback is that you know people feel that there's been oversteps in terms of privacy or they feel that you know from a political standpoint there have been um, violations of you know public policy or due process and so um, you know 
if you don't have that public backing, then it really becomes hard to make the argument for yourself. Like the gig economy companies, Uber, Lyft, and so on, a lot of the ways in which they, or a lot of reasons why they were able to brazen, um, you know, as you put it their way into different markets is because there were people on the ground who said, no, I mean, I really hate taking a cab and this is so much better for me. Uh, so we're going to make a stink about it if you guys come down mm-hmm. too hard on them. So my question listening to this is, it makes sense. It sounds great. We've talked about a lot of examples where the innovation was huge, right? An entirely new type of product and service that's being launched. But what if I'm on the customer experience or you know experience design team, and I'm just trying to launch a voice application, and I'm not sure if it's okay for me to store data in a certain way, and it seems like the the law might say no. Um, how, how up in arms do you do you go about this, or do you still apply that checklist? It seems like that's for much sort of broader innovations. Are there sort of s- smaller moves and sort of laws that um, companies and innovation teams are grappling with, or any examples that you have at that scale? Well, I mean, I think the, even the example that you give would be one in which the, che- the checklist would be applicable. If I am in a position where I want to create some sort of Alexa skill, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, something for uh, Google Home, for yeah, example. because I hear these questions all the time. So right. <laughs> this is why I'm asking you guys. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I still want to understand, you know, what is permissible, especially uh, in context of what it is that ultimately Amazon or Google are doing with this information. Because, I, you know, again, what I don't know as the developer... Uh, and it probably is explained in documentation and you know, kind of in conversations with them is, you know, is what exactly is the handoffs? You know, what sort of information are they tapping into? What sort of information are we gathering? Let's use a practical example. Let's say I want to I want to begin the loan origination process by having someone just you know, kind of yell at their at their um, their Sonos speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hey, I want to you know, um, hey, bank. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd like to explore opportunities for a car loan. Um, well, there are obviously things that are regulatory must that I have to go through. Like there's, there are disclosures, there are, um, you know, um, you know, kind of standard forms, standard processes that I have to walk someone through. So the understanding that I have to have is what level of latitude do I have? You know, has the law actually created some condition by which I can do this mm-hmm. in a format where there, there isn't a physical document being passed back and forth? Or is the process going to be so broken because I have to make so many workarounds and cutouts for the relevant regulation that it just makes sense to drive someone in that scenario to you know the, the branch mm-hmm. in order to actually walk through that process or drive them to their laptop um, to complete the process. So I mean I think there there are you know things like that that you have to consider because at the end of the day, like much of our CX ecosystem research talks about, we're all operating in this um, operating environment. That's that's part of the ecosystem, and a key component of that is going to be you know some regulation, whether you are cognizant of it or not. One thing to to consider here is is that in a lot of companies, when it comes to any sort of innovation, including CX innovation, the no from the legal team is considered the final answer, right? And that need not be the case. Right. I hear these examples all the time of these, these companies that, um, that get a no, and so they just they say, oh, they throw up their hands and they say, okay, well, I, I, guess, I guess we can't do anything. Let's, let's move on. It's important to remember that that first no from the legal team, that's their initial negotiating position. Right? Um, right? Um, uh, what you need to do is build that coalition and think through these six variables that TJ talked about. Right, and have that conversation, and the CX Pro is the only one who's going to lead that conversation. 
right? If the CX pro gets the no and then walks away, everybody else is going to walk away, right? Instead, get that group of people together, walk through those six variables, talk it through with every, with all those stakeholders we talked about, you know, earlier. Um, and of course, everybody's input's going to be important here. And then it's generally not going to be up to the CX pro to make the final decision, mm-hmm. but it can be up to the CX pro to lead things to a much healthier place a much more potentially innovative place than than just, you know, Bob and Legal said, no, let's move on. So sort of a, a step one takeaway here is if you ask Legal and they say no, <laughs> arm yourself with these sort of six factors and make the case as to why if it was a yes, it would provide all of this value, either for the market, for your customer, for um, other reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly be aware of the risks involved. I mean, I'm being a little flippant about it, but that's really what it comes down to, yeah. um, as you say, right? But there... For instance, um, uh, think about some of these um, uh, electric scooter companies, right, that basically took the Uber approach in San Francisco, for instance, right, and just and just put a bunch of scooters out there and said, hey, you know, uh, we may be breaking some rules or there may be all kinds of legal white space here. Uh, we're just going to ignore all that. We're just going to go for it. Uh, and it worked for a while. And then just a few weeks ago, San Francisco sweeped them all up and awarded specific contracts to specific companies that are the only ones legally allowed to, to operate scooters in the city. And guess what? It wasn't any of the companies that took that, that damn the torpedoes full speed ahead approach. They, in, in effect, locked those companies out mm-hmm. um, for that and other factors as well. But, but a huge key thing here was they awarded co- the, the, uh, the right to operate to the companies that play by the rules. Now, it's a different story. In um, in uh, other parts of, of of the country, where cities are, you know, letting those initial um, sort of violators, if you will, continue continue to operate, right? So my point is that 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 you do have to have a um, a realistic discussion of the risks involved here, along those six variables that that TJ talked about. Opportunity is only is only half of the coin. Mm-hmm. It's risk too. It's about balancing them, but about balancing them in a way that really takes account of the potential advantages of, of, of CX innovation. Mm-hmm. I guess the one thing I would uh, just kind of add to that is you know, that there's always an opportunity to look for a place to come to some sort of understanding, both internally and externally with the government. When we were first working on this um, last year, we were talking to some regulators over in Europe, You know, a, a place that is notoriously you know, kind of viewed as being... Um, you know, anti-business in this regard. <laughs> um, and, you know, what the regulator told us was essentially, hey, look, we don't, you know, we don't want to impede business. We just want to make sure that, you know, you kind of fit within the context of our rules. And I think, you know, what is often overlooked is the the potential willingness and the ability to work with governments on this. You know, Uber mm-hmm. is operating in New York essentially as another cab company. If you want to be an Uber driver in New York, your car has to be inspected. You have to go through the, this background check process. You have to have special stickers and badging on the car to indicate that you are indeed a car for hire. That is a position in which Google, or excuse me, Uber worked with the delivery board essentially in the city of New York to reach some sort of agreement in which they could operate. Um, New York didn't spend its time trying to keep Uber out, they worked with Uber to make sure that it could fit within the ecosystem of cars for hire within the city. And so I think it's it's that sort of 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 thinking that you have to have as well. That there are going to be opportunities, you know, with these innovations for you to work with 
your lawyers, with your designers, but also with regulators and legislators to make sure that what it is that you would like to be able to do Mm -hmm. is ultimately sanctioned by the official bodies. In fact, the uh, FDA, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, they actually have a um, an office in um, uh, in Silicon Valley that's specifically there to liaise with uh, wearables companies uh, to help them understand when a, for instance, a fitness tracker becomes a medical diagnosis device mm-hmm. uh, and how to uh, how to walk that line. Yeah. Right? They they're they're there to help. Right? They. Uh, I'm sure they would they would love to be busier and have more companies coming to them first for that sort of healthy, productive relationship that uh, that TJ TJ's mm-hmm. talking about. I'm glad you mentioned that because when I was uh, thinking about this too, I was thinking, does this mean that you hire different skill sets? That the lawyers that you hire, you want to make sure that they have the slant towards emerging technology, or even are just more open-minded or perhaps customer-centric so that you can make the case more for them and have them sort of go to bat for you. But so it's good to hear that there are these organizations out there that you can already begin to partner with today when you're looking at a specific innovation. But I guess, do you think that this has implications for sort of who you hire and who you put on this sort of coalition and sort of the skills or perspectives that they need to have? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, any any new introductions to a, a, a business, you know, in terms of new regulations or new ideas or things of that nature, are going to have are going to require a new mindset, which means that you want people in the business that have that level of um, creativity and flexibility um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of how they look at the world. You know, that said, I mean, I, I mean, granted, I mean, we're in a unique situation here in, in terms of the company that we work for, but I, I think by and large, you, you know, if you can create the conditions. Or create the understanding within the business that these things are important, mm-hmm. and that's going to be driven by you know, an understanding of what the competitive pressures are and what the market opportunities are. You know, then you're going to find people who are open, you know, to these ideas. You know, at the executive level and so on, that can perhaps push these things forward in the business. You know, when you look at you know, some of the doors that have opened in places like um, like media and places like um, healthcare and places like financial services, these things are driven by, you know, a sense of competitive pressure. And I'm sure the calls that you're taking from people are people that are worried about something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Everyone else is doing this. Do I need to be doing this? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So... I mean, I don't, I don't think that it, it requires, you know, going out, um, you know, to RISD or, you know, to the Stanford Design School and, and, and bringing in a, an entirely new crop of people who are, um, you know, uh, free thinkers in that sense. I think it's just being able to discuss this with business people on business terms, which, which you know, usually yeah. come down to the, the risk reward, cost benefit, things of that nature. It sounds like build this coalition. Continue to innovate. Arm yourself with the sort of these six criteria to look at anytime you want to sort of go against any regulation the government has in place, um, and you're good to go. <laughs> and we've even included a convenient scorecard uh, in the uh, uh, in the report so that you have it all in one spot. Okay. Well, TJ and Rick, thank you so much for joining us today, listeners. We will include a link to this report in the notes. Again, it's don't let government derail your customer experience innovation. Um, So check that out and we'll talk to you next week. If you have feedback or questions about this week's episode, please email us at cxcast, one word, at forrester.com. And remember, your customer's perceptions is your customer experience reality.